and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And we've got another great show for you this evening. Back by popular demand, as they say, is Mario Woods. Uh, last time he was on, it was a pre-recorded show. And this uh, time you'll have an opportunity, if you're watching live, to uh, ask a question or two. And just remember when you're doing that in chat um, that you want to do all caps so I catch the question. And if it fits and I can use it or I can go back to it at a later time and use it in another part of the conversation, I'll be glad to do that for you. Um, I want to uh, thank everyone that supports the show and anyone can do that. All you have to go do is go to the podcastufo.com and the support page. Um, and there are people that support the show in so many other ways. And I want to thank them as well. First of all, uh, Charles Lear, who does the blogs and audio blogs. I can't thank him enough. This week, a trucker reports a harrowing UFO encounter. That's the name of the blog. And that was back in 1973. And it's very interesting. Uh, Charles is uh, the author of The Flying Saucer Investigator. It's a great book. Um, I hope you uh, get that. The link to that is on um, is on the page as well. And now I'm putting them in his blogs that he does. Uh, we have Grant Cameron next week coming up. And uh, I want to thank a few people. Uh, Donna, my producer, for all that she does. Thank you very much. Uh, Brock is uh, helping out over on Facebook. Thank you very much for all that you do, Brock. He also helps me by sending me interesting things and through emails. And so does Phil, longtime listener and friend and supporter. Uh, Palmer, uh, thank you, Palmer. You, he sends me some very interesting stuff. I'm getting a lot of, I think it's Eyes on Cinema. A lot of people are sending me links to that. There are some fascinating uh, YouTube videos that have come up. I'm not really sure where they're coming from, but they're really great. So, uh, and I've tried to get the person that is running that channel um, on this show, but uh, I have not heard back from him. But anyway, um, I think I've talked enough. That's about me. And again, remember when you're in chat and you want to post a question, please use all caps so I catch them. And I'm bringing him in now. Mario, welcome to the show. Thank you, Martin. Nice well, to be here with you again. Yes, yes. <laughs> I had uh, a lot of people really excited about you you coming back on. So, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you're here. And there, you know, I mean, we'll talk about, I know this is, you know, one type of situation that happened to you, but it's fascinating. And a lot of people may have not caught the first show. So I do want to go over the, the whole uh, situation at November 5. Is that the name of the, uh, where the encounter happened? Yes. That was, that was the missile site launch facility. Yes. The launch facility is called November 5. Correct. And, and that's at, um, Ellsworth. Is that right? Ellsworth? Well, Ellsworth is the main support base and, uh, you're, you're, we, we were at November one, uh, launch control facility where you live for three days at a time, then you're off for three days. So we simply responded to an alarm. Uh, and I can go into that if you'd like, but yeah, November five was the affected launch facility, Minuteman missile site. And we arrived there, you know, maybe quarter till one or 10 till 1 AM uh, on November cold night. And everything started from that point. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get right into that and everything. But first of all, I wanted to tell you last time you were on, you mentioned about a childhood UFO sighting and your sighting that you had, I think you said it was back in 1961 or something like that at the schoolyard. Three my sister and my mother. Yes. Yeah. Your, your uh, sighting 
was very much like a person in the UFO field, had a very similar sighting. His name is Peter Robbins. He talks mm. about three silver discs him and his sister saw. Um, and uh, it just sounded so similar in formation, the way they were flying and all that. Uh, I, I mentioned it to him and he listened to your podcast. And yeah, he thought there was some uh, similarities in the two. Um, and it could have been right around the same time. Really? And, yeah, right That's around the same time. Yeah. And he's, uh, where were you at the time? I, this is what I can't remember. Uh, Port Arthur, Texas. Oh, you were in Texas. Okay. Port Arthur, was in, uh, yeah, my father shipped in and out of Port Arthur. Yes. I believe he was right in New York City or right in right near there, uh, I believe. So, but yeah, I mean, they distance doesn't matter to those guys, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is a schoolyard situation. Why don't you, just for the person that hasn't heard that, why don't you kind of go over what exactly happened? You were, were you actually in the car with your Yes. Yeah. My mother was taking me to schools. Matter of fact, I was five or six years old. I had like six years old. I was born in 55. And um, anyway, I was sitting in the front seat. Uh, Six-year-olds were allowed to do that back then. <laughs> and we were just yeah. two blocks from the school anyway. But the school was a, a, a uh, facility where you kindergarten to 12th grade. It was a one-building school. And uh, they had the street directly in front of it. Uh, fenced off and then the block across the street from the school was a playground and I don't know the exact number of students there uh, never did it was a lot of lot of kids and young teenagers there because I said it went to 12th grade and um, we were probably fifth or sixth in line that I can remember looking at the cars in front of me that I can I can think back that far and see them I always try to take a picture of something that's important in my mind I don't know how I can do that but I can always go back to that for some reason, but uh, my mother actually saw them first. She was driving and uh, she said, Anthony, my middle name, she goes, look at those flying saucers. And my sister was in the back seat and I was in the front seat and I just went, where? And she was pointing to them and they were to her left and there was a church on the left and it was directly next side by side to the school. It's no longer there, but it was a really pretty brick church at the time. And uh, I got under the window and I just looked at it, you know, like looking out of the top of the window underneath the, the rear view visor there, your rear view mirror, you know, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And everybody, everything just went quiet and everybody was looking at them, all the cars in front of us and people were hanging out the uh, out of the would have been the western windows of the school looking up and pointing and all the kids on the playground. I just did a quick scan at six years old and I saw all this because I couldn't believe it was happening, but it was the most normal thing to happen. I don't, uh, there was not any fear or anything, but it was like, Hey, they're supposed to be here. They just, they're supposed to be here. And they probably sat there for a minute or two, maybe, maybe three minutes. I'm really not sure, but enough to get a really good, good look at them. And my sister said, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared, Anthony, my middle name. And uh, I didn't even answer. I just kept looking. And then all of a sudden, just as they were there, they went straight up completely, almost like to punch a hole in the sky together at the same time. There was not one, two, three. It was all three at one time, just boosh, straight up. I mean, in a blast of a second, they were just out of view, out of the atmosphere, I guess. 
Now, if I remember right, nobody talked about it really that much. No, everybody just went back to playing like nothing had happened. It was as if <laughs> it was as if nothing happened. It was just the craziest thing, you know. And when I went back, I was working for a shipping company out of Norway, and when I was I was back there in '08, and um, I I was in Port Arthur, so I went right by the old right by my school. Matter of fact, I pick up picked up a couple of rocks I have today from the playground that's still there. And of course, the school's been rebuilt and the church is gone. But I sat on that corner for a moment because it meant something to me mm. at a point in time, I guess. And, and uh, just reflected, you know, what what was that and, you know, how cool that was to witness that. But yeah. yeah, it was it was really quite extraordinary to see that. So throughout your life, you must have wondered what this whole thing is about. Always. Oh, yeah. my, you know, my father used to, you know, he was a seaman. So he was a chief engineer with Texaco. And, you know, he would sometimes we would fish together and he would sometimes talk of lights under the sea. And uh, I never, you know, I, I never really said too much about him. And he said, yeah, there's there are things under the sea that move extremely fast, 50 times faster than our ships, you know, and, huh. you know, most most vessels coming up the coming up the Gulf Stream, you know, surrounding Florida, they're running 30 knots. You know, I mean, they pick up the Gulf Stream and they're flying. He said these things just blow by them, you know, or, or you know, he's even he'd even talked about things coming up and out of the sea and the whole crew would see it, a crew of 29 or 30 men. Boy, Boy would it be something to talk to someone that actually witnessed those. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when I worked for that shipping company, I used to always ask the captains of my vessels. They were all Filipino. We had four vessels that were uh, uh, had Latvians on board. And uh, but anything coming out of Mobile, Alabama or Panama City, I would always ask the captains, hey, anything weird going on out there? You know, because I, I have two of my my dad's uh, cousins went down on the Marine Sulfur Queen. I think that was in 63, if I'm not mistaken. And my dad got off of that vessel. Uh in Port Arthur, and as she when she sailed, she sunk. Hmm. That was the last of that. That was the Marine Self Queen. That was in uh, Charles Berlitz's book, also the Bermuda Triangle. Wow, wow. Um, so, what did he think about your sighting that you had at the schoolyard? I don't really know if he ever knew or my mother ever told him. <laughs> my father was always at sea, man. I mean, I was like the man of the house, you know, always. Hmm. Even from a young age, I mean, I took care of my mom, my sister, and then my my two baby brothers. You know, yeah, yeah, wow. And so, time goes by, and you enlist, and that was like the only encounter you had until the Air Force encounter, right? Yeah, I had I had seen a few things in the in the atmosphere, like over in Tampa, and um, one time over at uh, in Cocoa Beach, but. It wasn't anything definitive. It wasn't any kind of craft that I could identify or, or anything like that. I, I may have just been an aircraft, you know, from the Air Force or special project. I don't know. You know, that was an early time. So, yeah, yeah. No, not until not until South Dakota did I really see something that that uh, changed my life forever. Now, since you have been on the, when you were on the last time, I know that someone contacted you that uh, through my podcast. Uh, that you were, that you were in, I don't know if you, were you in Ellsworth at the same time or where were you stationed together? Oh, that was Osan Air Base. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, and, but anyway, have you had, has there been any other like 
new developments in any type of way other than her getting in touch with you um, since we've uh, last talked? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should ask that because uh, I, I did something last night um, with with another moderator. And uh, um, anyway, I, I several people contacted me because I put my email out there. And, you know, I had told you that in my debriefing uh, in Colonel Spraker's office at Ellsworth the day the day following it, the, the occurrence, but um, or the day of it was just really late in the afternoon by that time. But uh, Richard Doty was at, at my debriefing and he was a young trainee at the time. And I put out several times on several different shows that I would like to speak with him because, mm -hmm. you know, getting that verification you know, is important, you know, that you get somebody that says, yep, I remember this guy. I remember this guy. I remember what we did and what we talked about because yeah. he was like one of six people, five or six people that were there, but he was, he was a young trainee at the time. I do know that for a fact. So as of today, uh, he was given my number and my email and hope that he'll call me. I just want to discuss it with him. I'm going to say, Hey, mm -hmm. you remember me? Cause I remember you. I remember your face, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. I really do, but in it, I've been saying it all along. I'd just like to, I'd like to talk to him. Mm -hmm. Now I heard, I heard through the grapevine that he confirmed that he did, that he was there. Uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, okay. haven't, uh, I don't know of that. I haven't heard anything or seen anything concerning that, but I yeah. would really like to speak with him. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we get into it? Because this is, uh, sure. this is one of the, most amazing stories and i know i heard it once and a lot of our <laughs> listeners perhaps heard it when you were on last year but let's uh let's get into that night uh that this happened and what was the date again on that uh it was in november it was just before um thanksgiving yeah and it was 1977 and a blizzard had taken place in late october and the mm -hmm. temperature in South Dakota gets extremely cold especially yes. out on the prairies now in rapid city it's usually a few degrees different because that's the banana belt of the Black Hills. And uh, as winds come from the Northwest, the Black Hills insulate Rapid City somewhat. Mm. Um, but yeah, on the prairies, it's extremely cold. And, I was, and, and November 1, we were located north of uh, Sturgis um, and east of the Wyoming state line. And uh, I'd say probably 40 miles away to the Wyoming state line. But uh the next town north of us is Belfouche. I think that's about 29 miles away from us. Uh, what you see there is Newell Lake Reservoir Dam. Yeah, uh, well, that's where you end up. <laughs> and well, uh, I'm sorry, I was I saw on the map and I just pulled it up, but um, oh, um, and, and this was from the last time they were on. Is this does this have any significance? That's November five missile site from. Google oh, that's Earth. the November five yeah. missile site. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. So, but anyway, go ahead and continue. Sorry for that. Well, do you want me to start when it happened, or, or when it uh, when I first signaled them, or how? Or I, I think uh, when you <laughs> you first, I remember you went outside to smoke a cigarette. I did, and you saw a light at a distance, or you thought it was a light, or you didn't know what it was. And then I remember you signaled your the big cans, uh, the whatever they call those floodlight cans. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So go ahead and let's let's talk about the whole thing. <laughs> I, it was about nine, about nine thirty at night, and I stepped outside, and it was extremely cold. I think the temperature was between nine and thirteen degrees, mm -hmm. and uh, I just got walked out to stretch my legs because you only had three channels there to watch TV or read a book or uh, play a board game or something, you know, or 
uh, something like that. But anyway, I stepped out just to take a break and I smoked a cigarette. I did that then. And I see this object to the, to the east, direct east of us, or to our location, uh, to the launch control facility location, uh, which is November 1. And it was about a 30 degree angle in the sky. And I thought it was really strange because of the luminosity, the brightness and the color of the light just was unfamiliar to me. And, uh, you know, you see a, a searchlight from a helicopter or something like that today. Uh, this was just different. You see uh, aircraft lights near a runway or something. This was just different than that. And it's very difficult to explain how different it is, but it gets your attention. And uh, anyway, as I watched it, it just, the intensity of it was just really baffling. And I went, well, is that a helicopter? Is that B-52 bombers? Because Ellsworth supported a, a strategic uh, wing of, of ready alert bombers, B-52s at the time. And uh, so just for fun, and that's the only way I can put it, uh, after watching it four or five minutes, literally, I just walked inside and my buddy Bill Holloman was on the phone <laughs> talking to his wife in, uh, back at, uh, in Rapid City. And I said, Bill, I said, there's something out here in the atmosphere, you know, in the air. I said, I don't know what it is. I said, it's a real bright light. I said, I don't know if it's uh, helicopters or any word from anybody or anything. And he just waved me off. And I, I just thought, well, I'm going to flip the facility lights at it. And there's 12 to 14 of those two foot cans which are security perimeter lights. And we have what an eight or 10 foot fence ar around the entire area. Hmm. And they are just what they say. They are They're security perimeter lights, the light of everything outside, you know? So I just walked up to one rocker switch and I just flipped it off and on three or four times. Just blip, 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 blip. Walked back outside, <laughs> looked at the, looked at this object just sitting there. And all of a sudden it just flipped off and flipped on, flipped off and flipped back on. And I went, Wow, <laughs> that worked, you know, I just kind of laughed. Uh, it's funny, I got a helicopter passing overhead right now, but oh. <laughs> anyway, um, so I said, well, that's, that's interesting. So I walked back inside again and I didn't say anything to Bill Holloman, but I did say something to Michael Johnson and I said, Michael, this guy is working vacation relief. So I really don't know him. It was our first time we ever worked together. And he replaced my partner who's going back to the Carolinas to get married. And normally I would be the team leader, but he outranked me by two months. Real nice guy, Michael Johnson. Been trying to find him for years now, but um, with no with no luck. But uh, so anyway, I, I said, you got to see this, man. I just flipped the lights at this thing out here and it flipped the lights back at me. Or it went off and went back on like I flipped the lights at it. And he just kind of looked at me kind of strange, you know. And, you know, you got to mind, you're, you're in the middle of a prairie. There is nothing but buffalo running out there. <laughs> there, there are no, there's no trees. You know, the, the, the state tree is a mall bell telephone pole. That's what we always used to have a joke about <laughs> that. And uh, uh, anyway, so I walk back outside and it's still there. He came out a few minutes later and I said, watch this thing, you know. So it didn't do anything. I went back in and flipped the lights on. This went on three times. And it did flip the lights back off and back on. And the last time it did it, it moved further north uh, with the lights, with it off. Mm. And uh, prior to that, it just seemed as if it was staying in the same place. I thought it was coming towards us. It didn't get bigger at the, or anything like that. It just, it just stayed the same. 
But when it went off the last time, and prior to it coming back on, it had moved more north, but yet kind of west too, kind of like at an angle, like a northwest trajectory. And when it came back on, I saw it. And I went, wow, well, he had walked back inside because he just didn't think, oh, whatever. He didn't think anything about it. And I'd say it was probably right around quarter to 10, 10 till 10, something like that. I, I try to keep the time straight. But. So it, it went off and I didn't see it again. And there I remember saying to myself, I said, I guess this show's over. Hmm. And uh, I walked back inside. You know, turning around and looking again over my shoulder, back in the front door of the LCF and uh nothing so anyway we started doing something and the tv went off or the channels end at midnight so you get those weird warble things or whatever you know on the screen you just turn the tv off because that's there's no more programming and yeah. uh yeah that antenna is still standing i helped erect that <laughs> antenna. still in the back of the building man i couldn't believe it but mm -hmm. anyway uh I guess it was, it was right after it was about 1230 or so. And the, 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 uh, flight security controller's office, he's the one that dispatches us, but yet he's there's, there's in a configuration on a launch control facility, you have six security police officers, three of which are on duty at all times. One flight security controller. He is the one that tells us where we're going, what we're doing. Kind of like our, our guy in charge for us, for security police. And then mm. we answer to the launch control uh, capsule members, uh, which a captain and a lieutenant, uh, commander and an assistant underground. And uh, anyway, they're monitoring all the missiles underground, 60, 75 feet, however deep. We have one facility manager, and then you have a site cook also. And in reserve, you have three security officers, one flight security controller, two response officers, or, or as we were, and then you have two additional officers that are that are the launch control relief officers. So you have four officers, six cops, facility manager, and a site cook on a site at one time, all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week. So anyway, the alarm goes off on this phone. And as that phone rings, it's one of those direct alert phones that have that really strange sound and eh, like that, you know, it rings until you pick it up. Hmm. So Bill Holloman gets picks the phone up. And he's listening to what the commander is telling him. We, I hear, sit for November five. He said he says ten for that. We'll do this, do that. And you know, we followed our normal procedures, our code tables, our weapons, and everything. Our vehicle was sitting directly outside the door, an F one fifty four pickup truck, which we have our ditty bags ready and everything ready to go. Our flight pants, our parkas, and all that stuff ready to go. Get all in, get in everything, and. Uh, once we got our safety briefing from downstairs, which Michael Johnson obtained that, uh, wing security control chimes in, and now they're back at the main support base at Ellsworth. They're like the overseeing security force for everybody. They can, they do many things, whether it be on the, the aircraft alert pad back at base or whether we have an incident out in the field. They're like the central controlling uh, uh, office that looks at everything. So anyway, we get in our vehicle and we've got about a 15 minute travel time to November one. And, uh, as we depart the site, go out the end of the road, take a left, go to, and it's, these are all clay roads. Now they go all the way to Wyoming or all the way to Montana on clay road that better than most interstate highways. Are they plowed though? Excuse me. 
are they plowed? Uh, yeah. When they're, yeah, yeah, they're plowed. They, they normally yeah. are. And also, we have a front end loader on the facility if they ever get, we got snowed in a few times and we used our front end loader to plow all the way out to Highway 79. So, um, but yes, sir, that, that's true. Uh, mm -hmm. And But the state keeps really, really good. Everything's really good. Power's always on because they built underground all those years ago. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, you, mm. even in, even in Rapid City, you never lose power. But uh, so anyway, we proceeded onward. And um, the time now was probably 1235, 1240. We had a 15-minute travel time. And as we took that left and went on to the clay road directly in front of November 1, goes to the next intersection, four-way intersection, dirt road, took another left to go to Highway 79. It's about four and a half miles up to Highway 79. <clears throat> and while you're traveling up to Highway 79, the roadbeds normally built up higher. So moisture and snow and water and ice will flow off of them mm -hmm. uh, before they even salt them or what have you. So as we were going up that hill, I just, I'm in the passenger side and this is important. I look over to the four o'clock position. Now this is just flat prairie land. You got, you know, I mean, you can see a long way out there. Mm. And I saw this faint glow at about my four o'clock position over my right shoulder, looking out the window of this F-154 pickup truck. And I was like, man, I said, Michael, do you see that? Well, he didn't even really look. And he just kind of said, whatever. As we, as we pulled up on the highway 79. So now that four o'clock position changed to about a two o'clock, maybe one thirty position as the clock would look in front of you. And we're going down the hill, downhill toward Newell. And you could see a brighter glow now because we were up on a we were up on like a top of a plateau on that mm -hmm. road. And uh, as we traverse toward Newell, the road goes back downhill again. So we lost that glow. But I kept saying, I said, you see that? I said, I'm telling you, that's that object. He just he didn't even know what to say. He just said, whatever. I, I don't think so or whatever. So. The town of Newell at that time had a population of 234, I believe. Hmm. And it's only <clears throat> like 650 or 674 today. I was just out there last year. Oh, it tripled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or doubled. Yeah, people, or tripled. Yeah. Super yeah. nice people. And all of them are great cooks, but we stopped at some really nice places there. But uh, as there's a stop sign we came to that's Ormond Road and it goes to the right. And that's where November five is off of. There's one stop sign and there's one stoplight in Newell, South Dakota. And that's the stoplight is straight ahead about a mile. And we stopped at the stop sign still there today. Same stop sign. Turn right on the Ormond road. It goes out about a mile and a half and it drops from pavement back off to clay. And when it did that, the road dog legs to the left, there's an actual golf course out there today that's on the left side of the road at Ormond Road. You can look it up on Google Maps. And when we when we turn that corner to the left, there, there was an object, there was an object sitting there. And it was, and I'm gonna tell you this, and I've used this as a description because I mean, people can relate to it. It was a size of a super Walmart building. And it was sitting about 10 foot in the air directly on top of November 5. No noise, no sound, no leading edges, no hard edges, no thrust, no wings, no cockpit, nothing but a huge plasma sphere, a craft of some type that I, I can't even explain it. 
Uh, it looked like a looked like the sun sitting there. Yes. Uh, in that picture where our vehicle is pulled up at a 45 degree angle, there's a cattle gate just beyond that. And from beyond that cattle gate to the site, it's only about 20 yards. The diameter of this is really not true that because the diameter of that object seen by me was literally over this almost maybe 20, maybe 20 yards away from, uh, how should I explain this? The circumference was so large that where our vehicle sat, it wasn't far to where the edge of the, of the craft was. Uh, that's really not a good way to say it either. The diameter was huge <laughs> and um, it was as if it was as if it was almost not fire, but electrical plasma light. I've seen I've seen welding and I've seen plasma burning and that's what it reminds me of. But it was the atmosphere was just almost electric or ionized. Uh, and in that thought, <clears throat> the, uh, my partner, he just, he just literally froze on that steering wheel. And, uh, I remember seeing a, uh, there was like a, a glow on the left-hand side of him that I've never seen anybody lit up like that in any way. And so fast this came at me was that the atmosphere in that truck was as if someone just sucked it out. It was as if the light was so bright, you could close your eyes and see through your eyelids, but couldn't breathe. And I honestly felt in that parka and those flat pants and everything I had on me that I was, I felt as if I was about to burn up, but yet I felt as if I was being pulled up in the back of that seat. Now these weren't cab plus vehicles. These were single cab F-154 pickup trucks with Western mirrors and something sparked in my mind. And I don't know why this happened. I'm shaking like a damn leaf right now, but, um, I, uh, I rolled the window down and I had my mag light and, uh, a, a D cell mag light, you know, they give no light compared to what lights do today. And I had a mitten on my left hand and my right hand was, was bare. And, uh, I had my mag light in it and I reached up and I pulled myself up on that Western mirror, which was big stainless steel mirrors. And I pulled myself up on the window seal. Why would I do that? I was, you know, I was a 210 pound man, six foot two, you know, but I was scared to get out of that truck with a weapon or not. I mean, nothing that you can think of can, can you use or, or even think of, think of employing at a time like that. And um, I pull myself up on that seat, apologize. I pull myself up on that seat, up on that windowsill from that seat. And I took my mag light, mag light and I held on to the blue bubble on top of the vehicle and I flashed this little old mag light, a D-cell mag light at this object. In no sequential order, I just flashed it like, okay, it's me. That's what I, that's what I had to say. That's what I, and well, as soon as I did that, the atmosphere came back. <laughs> and when that happened, I, I, I said, okay. And I, I remember saying something else too. I, 
when I slid back down on that seat, I put my weapon between my leg and I told Michael Johnson, I said, it'll be okay. I said, it'll be okay. That's what I said. And then I, then everything just kind of tunnel visioned. And, um, uh, I, I just, I just went out and, um, the next thing I know when I, uh, but I'm going to say this, but the, before I, before I went out, you know, you, you sitting there thinking in a situation like this, you know, what, what next? Mm-hmm. What next? And I, I was able, I looked to my right, not wanting to in a, in a tunnel configure in a tunnel vision type feeling or something. And I saw figures to my right and I was so afraid because there was only a small thin eighth inch plate glass window glass between me and whatever was out there. Is it this uh, that you did a drawing of? That's correct. Yeah. That, that one in that waist belt or whatever that is right there, that mm. thing scared me literally to death. Mm. But the one behind there, actually there's four of them. There's three of those little guys, but the one that was behind them, the tall one, he had something on his chest that protruded out of his the top of his chest under his so-called chin. That's a later drawing. That's not as good as the original ones. Mm-hmm. But, um, well, um, I know this is, uh, yeah, but um, I know this is, this is hard for you to talk <clears throat> because uh, when we talked before, even offline, I know it, it gets you emotional to talk about this. This was <laughs> a, a major thing in your life. Yeah. And, uh, so I understand right. that. And the, these, these are not creatures. Yeah. These, these beings are not creatures. These are beings, man. These beings, they exist. They've been here and they've been here a long time and they've been coming here and doing anything that whatever they want to do, they can't be stopped. I don't even know if they can be understood. The technology is just that our, 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 our knowledge is just that much different. But to complete what I, what happened after that, I went black. Yeah. Uh, before, before we move on, yeah. I just okay. want, want to ask you this. If you can try to describe the sphere, was it, did it seem like it was perfectly round or, uh, you know, or do you think this thing was sideways, like a disc? Any no. ideas at all? No. It was round as a baseball, round as a yeah, softball, mm-hmm. completely round. Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I saw to the east on November November one, but I didn't yeah. know the size of it. Yeah. Now I don't know if the plasma was a, is a way in which its uh, shape is kept uh, uh, from being seen. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what's in the middle of it, but mm. I only know that it looked <laughs> as if it was literally on fire, but yet controlled fire, if that makes sense. Hmm. Wow. So then you, everything went black for you. Yes, sir. Um, it was as if um, somebody just turned me off. Hmm. And then uh, literally somebody flipped a switch. I get. I don't know how else to describe it. Michael Johnson. And at, that, at that time, how far away would you say the beings were uh, guess, guessing? 20 foot and approaching me. Wow. So they were fairly close. Mm. Yes. Mm. 
So you, so you were able to get a good look at him. And and your partner in the truck, he's frozen. He's not even looking, right? No, not that I could see. I mean, at that particular point, I, the last I saw of him was when I told really the last time I focused on him was when I told him it'd be okay, you know, mm. after I used the mag light. And I sat back down in the, in the seat and I put my weapon between my legs. Um, the next thing that I know is I woke up and everything is pitch black. Pitch black, nothing running, just pitch black. Um, and I was looking around and I said, where are we? I said, Michael, what are you doing? What are, what are we doing? No answer. No answer at all. I, I, I activated my mag light. It worked. I said, man, what are we, what are we doing? Where are we? Because we weren't where we were. And I popped the door open. And when I did, I put my, my, I had bunny boots on, which are inflatable cold weather boots mm -hmm. um, that protect your feet. And I stepped out in mud. Now it had been cold, you know, well below zero for probably uh, 10 days, eight or 10 days. Mm. And most of the ground elsewhere was frozen when you walked on it at all crunched, you know? So I couldn't figure out why I was standing in mud. And of course that mud is not mud, it's clay, you know, it's, it's really not mud, mud, but it's clay. And, uh, I, I stepped out with one leg and I looked to my right and there's a white wall not a wall that's a 90 degree straight up from the, from the ground, straight up to your side, but at an angle. And, uh, <clears throat> as far South as I could, that would be North and South. So as far North as I could see, it continued. And as far South as I could see, it continued not knowing where we were. And as I was in that mode of thinking, all of a sudden, all of a sudden the radio came to life and it said WSC to November, one what's your location and i i turned to michael johnson who's still frozen on that steering wheel literally he is just like that stuck on a on a light blue plastic steering wheel on that f-150 ford i never forget that his arms were flexed you know he'd been hanging on that steering wheel like catatonic state i guess and his eyes were open he was breathing but he wasn't there mm. I, I don't know I'm not a psychologist. I don't know, but, um, mm -hmm. I talked to him and talked to him and I, I, you know, best I could. And I, I stayed on, I got on wing security control and I said, it's senior Airman woods. I said, he asked my location. I said, I don't know. He said, I need you to do one minute security checks. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, we're trying to triangulate your position. He didn't say anything about anything else. And I didn't know what to ask. So I did what they said. And as, that's going on. I'm still trying to, you know, say something to Michael Johnson to answer me to, to, Hey man, I'm shaking him. I'm pushing his head. Nothing, nothing. I mean, I really tried in every way, try to, you know, pull his arms, pull his hands off of the steering wheel. I mean, it would come, but I could tell it wasn't supposed to. And I just left him alone thinking maybe he would unfreeze, you know, I don't know. But, um, all of a sudden it started getting light. And I hadn't even looked at my watch and, and it was working the little Timex watch and, uh, five hours had passed and the sun was coming up in the East. 
And on the south side of us, there's an old, there's a tree. It looks like an old Western movie hanging tree that's about a half a mile away. It's still there today, hmm. that tree. And we were on the back side, not knowing this, but I'll finish the other part of this first. But the first people to get to us was a security response team, backup alert team. And it was a Sergeant Garza. And uh, he got out of the vehicle. He parked about 20 yards away. He got out of the vehicle and walked towards us. He, he had his weapon on. And I stepped out of the vehicle and I walked toward him. And I said, he goes, stay right there, Mario. Stay right there. He said, you okay? I said, I'm okay, but my Michael Johnson's not. And none of us really knew Michael Johnson. As I said, he was working vacation relief. He was from another flight. He's normally on the 66 area it, down by the Badlands. But vacation relief, they send you anywhere they want where there's a vacancy. So I said, man, what happened? Because all I'm worried about is we didn't strike that site. We didn't, we didn't perform what we were supposed to do on that facility. And I knew there was trouble from that because it was an mm. important alarm mm -hmm. and that can't be left undone. Somebody had to go on that site. And, uh, he said, I can't talk to you about that, Mario. We're just here to take you and him back to November control. I said, okay. I said, I need some help moving him. I said, he is frozen to the steering wheel. I said, he won't talk or anything. I said, he's breathing and he didn't really know what to say when I told him that, but he helped me move him over and I put him in the passenger seat and I drove. We went back to November one. Well, come to find out we were on the backside of November Lake reservoir dam. And the other thing was the vehicle was pointing to the South, uh, which would be the lower part of that screen where those two white dots of snow are. Now that's a holding reserve down there in case that dam overflows hmm. in the upper part of that dam. The slough is on the far end there at the very bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's where they release water when this thing, when this thing is full, I don't know how deep it is. I don't think it's that deep, but it's just a big reservoir, you know, a new, it's just a reservoir dam. But, um, that's what the white wall was and it was covered in snow didn't mm -hmm. know that we were down at the very center of it now had michael johnson been okay and stepped out of that vehicle this is the weird part about it these are only two-wheel drive vehicles there was no way to drive down in there and turn around and in face south which where we were facing because there was really not a road what we were sitting on that's why sergeant garza parked 20 yards away he parked up at an area where he you know, he, you could access and, and do it safely. But had Michael Johnson stepped out of the vehicle on the driver's side, he'd have taken two steps and he'd have gone down about 30 feet into mm -hmm. that little holding reservoir down there. Wow. And that was a big lake as I, well, I was just out there. I mean, it was, it was sizable. I said, well, I had no idea that it was that large. You could have uh, driven right in there by accident too. Well, you couldn't turn around though. I mean, mm -hmm. we were facing the only direction that you could travel in to get out of there. Hmm. That that's that's what I'm trying to say. There was no way to drive in there and turn around and come back out where we were located. It's almost like you backed in. Uh, I don't think we backed at all. There were no tracks as far as I know going in there. Huh? We were put there. You think you were put there? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, so we that's went amazing. to number one from that point and got back to the launch control facility, whereas 
there was a lot of people waiting on us when we got there. A flight chief, assistant flight chief. There was some other law enforcement personnel there. Uh, all the backup alert uh, teams were there. Um, the officers that were off duty now as and were on duty while they dispatched us were talking to us, asking questions. And uh, they didn't talk to us. They talked to me because they took Michael Johnson in a back room to see if they couldn't do something medically for him. And I don't know, the flight chief kind of, or not the flight chief, but the assistant flight chief and the site manager kind of took care of him. Now, I don't know what, what medical stuff they did or maybe some smelling sauce or something, but he never talked again. He didn't ever speak again at, from the time we left November 1 that night up to Highway 79 when he said whatever was the last thing that he uttered four, six o'clock the next morning or whatever the next morning to anybody if he did. So they separated us and I just, I was so talked out and trying to explain what I had seen. And there was a lot of communication going on back at Ellsworth uh, to November control. I remember that. And I, did, I wasn't privy to listen to a lot of it. I don't know. I was, I was hoping maybe I heard something about radar or anything like that, but I didn't. And um, I just wanted to get away from everybody. And this was the strangest thing I, I, I knew. I said, I'm going to, I got to go to the restroom. Didn't have to. I just wanted to. And I went in. There was two stalls there. And uh, I went in there and I just sat down on a toilet. And just trying to get my thoughts and just breathe, you know, just think about what had happened and, and the void or something or whatever I felt. I, 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 it's very difficult to explain when you can't account for for time or, hmm. you know, <laughs> something like that, I mean, something like that, but something, something tripped in me. I don't know what, but I felt all of a sudden lightheaded. And then I felt as if I, I thought I was dying. I, I, um, I started, I started to leave my body and I was going down through my body to my, I knew I was going through my feet. If that makes any sense, I, which I don't, I don't know anything about that, but I just felt as if I was going down through my body and I was, I was going to leave my body. Hmm. And really I'd almost, you know, given up on the fact that there was no way I could stop it. And I, and I just opened my eyes a little bit. I heard something and I saw four furry legs, four furry paws on the floor in front of the stall door, which belonged to a German shepherd drug dog. <laughs> And then behind them was a set of Cochrane shiny spit polished boots, which was the law enforcement guy that I knew from Ellsworth. And I, and I said, Hey man, how you doing? He goes, Hey Mario, we're all right. And I said, my ditty bags out there. He said, we already checked it. You're good. Are you all right? And I said, I don't know what I am, man. Hmm. And I don't know who that was, but uh, anyway, I said, I'll be out in a minute and I'll wash my face really good. And, just tried to gather myself. And when I went back out to the day room, uh, uh, and Gray and told me we were going to go to proceed back to Ellsworth. We were relieved. And, um, so we gathered up all of our stuff, which was in the day room. I don't even think I took it out of the vehicle, but somebody did and put it in the day room. And, uh, so I got in a vehicle with him and Michael Johnson was taken by two up by the assistant flight chief. And I think somebody else rode with him. And we were all taken back to the main base, which, you know, was over an hour ride. So I got to talk, you know, Sergeant Gray, he just asked me all kinds of things. And I told him everything that I knew and everything that I saw. 
and he was an Alabama boy. I remember that. And he, uh, he just, he didn't even know what to think. He, he just, you know, I mean, these supervisors, they go through a lot. <laughs> they hear everything from everybody, all walks of life at all times. And th I think this pretty much did him in. He was a big guy too. He's really a nice guy. And, um, so he said, we're going to, you know, we're going, the commander wants to talk to you, Colonel Spraker and that kind of thing. And I, I said, yes, sir. You know, I expected all that. So he said, can you, can you write a report? And I said, of course I can, you know, so there was entries made on the security police blotter. I know that, um, at the site at, at November one, which was a you know, security police blotters, all actions, everything that had taken place, you know, on a facility that's annotated it, even your social security numbers on those blotters. So I wish I could get hold of one of those blotters today, which would um, which would give me information to find Michael Johnson. He's been looking mm. for him for for many many years, and substantial monies have been spent in trying to find trying to find him with investigators. Nothing bad, just trying to locate him. All media platforms, social platforms, anything together we served platform, anything I can do to find him. That's what I've, I've been looking for him but mm -hmm. so we get back to the base and we go to the main SATAF building which is a converted uh aircraft hangar from world war ii as uh, i guess they they had bombers in there at one time and that was our security police operations center where law enforcement security central security control and all all the officers uh had offices and uh osi was there um there was a man in a suit and my commander I'm not sure if it's the assistant base commander or possibly the base commander. I can't remember. Uh, there were probably it, there were probably seven people in that office when I went there. I was only introduced basically to Colonel Spraker, and I just I uh, made myself available to Colonel Spraker, who I reported to. So I had to do that formally, and uh, then he had asked me to sit down, and he wanted me to be at ease to talk about what had happened, and I tried to my best to explain it to him, and. Um, and everybody in the room. Now, there was a young OSI guy there named Richard Doty, who's been on several different things. And he was in training, I understand, in OSI. And uh, I've been trying to make contact with him for a long time too, because he was at my debrief. Uh, not only was he there, but he also went over to the flight surgeon's office mm -hmm. where I was later examined. But my debrief took about three and a half to four hours. And mm -hmm. within that time, I was asked every single question that they could come up with and what I thought it was, what I saw, what I didn't see, so they said, or how I felt about what I saw. And then Michael Johnson, how well did I know him? Uh, did I know what I knew about him? I mean, they really were diving deep into, you know, how much I knew about Michael Johnson, which was nothing, literally nothing. I mean, we had met at six, we, we met on the bus ride out there. You know, school bus rides out there that dark blue buses they took took us out in, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, excuse me, but um, I didn't know anything about him. He said he was from Chicago, Illinois. I didn't know that, or he said he was. And um, so I did a, uh, a formal report. Uh, I, I can't remember the report number. I thought it was a 1,000, but we, we, we found out that wasn't the case. That's different. That's a different report number because everything's got a form number. And I know I did this because it had to be done with a number two skill craft pin and it was in triplicates. So I print really well and I print real small. And um, 
I remember taking a long, long, long time to write down every single thing that I could recollect in my mind. Now, I did not say what I saw out the east out of this side of my window because, you know, there, there's certain things, you know, when you have a, a secret or a top secret clearance, it, you know, you can't uh, at that particular time in 1977, regardless of what was going on out there with the cattle mutilations or other sightings and so forth, you could not say, well, I, I happen to see some little guys out here on the, you know, outside my window. So you didn't tell, you didn't tell anyone that. No, no. All right. We're going to take just, just a quick break uh, just for just a second, just to say goodbye to everyone over at uh, KGRA radio. And again, we'll be back uh, with Grant Cameron next week. Thank you over there. And thank you, Bill. Um, so, but we're, we're going to continue. We're going to uh, go into some of the questions um, again, if you would put those in caps, uh, we're going to be doing that as we move along here. But uh, but but go ahead and, and continue if you would. <clears throat> so that lasted about three and a half to four hours, hmm. and uh, that whole debrief. And then uh, Colonel Spraker, uh, once he was satisfied somewhat. And he asked another officer a couple of questions, but not with me being able to hear it, kind of like shielding his mouth and talking over his right shoulder. And over his right shoulder was a was a gentleman that was in a suit and a and a hat. He wasn't very tall. And on his right was OSI, uh, an officer, a captain. And then this Richard Doty was a, a young NCO. He was standing to his right. And uh, wearing glasses, I, I looked right at him and I thought, I've seen you. I've seen you on this base. You know, I, I, uh, I guess he was kind of new or something. I don't know. But uh, there were 800 security policemen on, on Ellsworth Air Force Base at that particular time. And uh, many, many different things happened uh, to a lot of people in all these different areas in these missiles or at, on these missile sites. But anyway, so from there, I was taken to um, uh, the flight surgeon's office. Where there was a doctor, uh, another guy. Uh, I don't know if he was another doctor. It was a nurse, um, OSI, and one other person. Uh, there were five people there, hmm. and uh, the doc, the the main doc, the other doc. One of them just kind of stood back, and this this other doctor, he checked my ears, eyes, nose, throat, pulse, heartbeat, everything, and. You know, was talking to me, did the finger thing in front of my eyes, that kind of thing. Uh, reflexes, you know, asked me how I felt. And I told him of my incident, you know, in the bathroom, how I felt. And he, he didn't really comment on that. Hmm. And uh, at the very end of all of it, he looked at my teeth, too. He looked at my teeth and gums. I remember that. And uh, which I thought was weird. <laughs> hmm. And uh, he goes, I need to, he said, I need to take a couple of skin samples from you. And I, and I. I just kind of sat back and I said, because I'm sitting up on his end of this table, you know, and I, I said, excuse me. He goes, I need to take a skin sample, two skin samples. And I said, uh, why? And he goes, well, your son burned. Huh. Uh, I went, what? He goes, your face is burned and your hand is burned. And I, mm. I looked and I didn't really think about it. But when I tapped my skin like a sunburn, I could feel it. And then I can feel my face. So here on the right side above my eye, he took he took one or two pinches of skin, just enough to cause blood to flow, and just put a small Band-Aid on it. And he did the same thing on the back of my right hand. And uh, I never got the results of any of that and never 
I don't even have the uh, paperwork from the actual uh, examination. Would you think it was radiation? I mean, that's the only thing that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, you're in the winter in South Dakota. I mean, yeah. my first time back to Tampa, Florida, my home, I um, I went to Clearwater Beach and fell asleep and almost got an Article 15 because I got smoked on the beach and had to go to McDill for help. <laughs> I got burned up pretty bad. But, um, yeah, that was that was really strange. And, um, mm. uh, and then the weirdest part was, you know, I was uh, married at the time and um, – uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, explain this. Uh, and first of all, I'd only been out one day. So normally I'd be gone for three days and then be off for three days. But, uh, when I, when I was told I could call my wife, it was right around three o'clock in the afternoon, in the evening then. And, um, she thought, well, what's going on? And I said, well, I really can't tell you. Hmm. And, um, and, and I, and I, and I didn't, I mean, cause I was, I was told, you know, I signed what I signed as a non-disclosure agreement that I would not discuss this in any way that this, this was classified and, you know, and as Colonel Spraker says, classified top secret, but I didn't sign any, you know, top secret document. I just signed a letter that saying I would not discuss this with anyone in, including family or whatever members. I remember that and I signed it and printed my name and my social security number and, my security police badge number, J4292. So, uh, you, but you feel comfortable talking about it now? I don't have a clearance any longer. I see. It was yeah, for clearance. I, yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, yeah. in 83, when I got out, I went to work for the United States Department of Energy and um, as a security inspector. And um, so with a Q clearance, which is above secret, uh, I certainly couldn't talk about it. And I did not. And um, but I was questioned about it heavily. Uh, a couple of different times and it took me eight months to obtain my first clearance. And then uh, you're brought before a board of three to five people uh, from the Oak Ridge office. And uh, they in turn try to see what you will talk about. Hmm. And so, so they, they kind of trick you into to things. Well, they try to, to, they yeah. try to see if you'll divulge what you signed saying you would not. And if you do, then that negates your Q clearance or you're put on a casual type uh, uh, clearance where you can't really do your job because you're under PRP and everything else, a first responder and what have you. So if you give up that, you know, you, what else would you give up if you had to? So who's the uh, first person you told about the beings? I guess a uh, a counselor, uh -huh. and that was probably uh, nineteen um, ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. So all that time you kept it to yourself. That was a long time to keep it to yourself. Yeah, something that. Yeah, I, I did have contact with Michael Johnson two weeks after the incident. He came to my apartment in Rapid City. How he found out where I live, I don't know. Lived, I don't know. So what was that like? Well, it was it was really interesting because it was a couple of things that uh, that was uh, profound, I must say. So he came in and uh, he knocked on my door and uh, I answered the door and I, I opened it. I couldn't believe it was him. I said, Michael Johnson. I said, how are you doing, man? He goes, I had to come find you. And I said, well, I, I said, I'm glad you did. I said, I've been wanting to talk to you. I had no idea where you were or how to contact you. And uh he said somebody somebody had told him where I lived. 
and uh, which was downtown in Rapid City, Hainesway Apartments. So when he came in, I introduced him to my wife. And I, I just kind of said, you know, we saw something together and we haven't seen each other since it happened. And it was traumatic. And she knew it was because she knew something was going on with me. And, uh, mm. and, uh, and I still didn't divulge what it was. But uh, anyway, he went, I put him over by my sofa and a coffee table. And I went to the dining room table and I said, with paper and pencil. And I said, I want you to draw what you saw and I'm going to draw what I saw. Hmm. And we did that. Good idea. He saw that craft. Hmm. He had it illuminated like I did. And we were very similar in many of the visuals that we both witnessed together that night, even though I thought he was incoherent, but he wasn't. Hmm. Both of us recollect, and it really it wasn't in, it was really strange because we both heard the words in our bodies. Do not fear. Hmm. Do not fear. Really, Over and over again. And it, yeah. it, it wasn't as if somebody was talking like you and I are. It was inside my body in, in his body too. Do not hmm. fear. Do not fear. All you can do is fear. You, you, you don't know anything but fear because you can't understand what it is. Hmm. Anyway, he stayed for about an hour and we talked about it. And of course, I, from that point, then I had to, I, I asked him, and I asked him a question. It's kind of strange. I'm uh, up to that point, you know, I, I always, um, I played tennis and I did all kind of stuff and, and I still did, but, um, I became so interested in pyramid structures. I don't know how to explain that. Uh, I had to draw them and read about them and find out every dead gum thing I could find out about them still do to this day for what reason, I don't know, but there's hmm. something I had to find out about them. and I'm, and I still research them today. So I'm kind of like a shoestring archeologist <laughs> in my own way, you know, hmm. something that I just do. And yeah. uh, they're all over the world. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Know, and it's all in the same 33rd parallel thing. You know, it's, it's crazy, but, um, That, uh, that whole incident just, um, it never goes away and it's, uh, it's always there. The other thing that Michael Johnson said, he goes, this just blows me away. He goes, I saw one of your, I saw your glove on the floor hmm. and I, you know, I, at, at that particular point, you know, my ditty bag was, you know, it's a, it's a ready bag. It's really large. You can put anything on that thing. You can carry 300 pounds in it if you want to. Mm -hmm. So it's got all of our cold weather gear in it, our underwear, our, 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 all of our toiletries. You just carry everything you have to have for these three days out in the field. You literally live out of that bag, all your clothes, everything. And, uh, he goes, I saw one of your, uh, one of your gloves, meaning my mittens, on the floor. Hmm. And I said, what floor? What floor, Michael? They're in my bag. He goes, no, on a shiny floor. I saw your mitten on the floor. I said, hmm. really? He said, yeah. I said, wait a minute. So I ran in my bedroom and I grabbed that ditty bag, which the only thing it was minus was dirty clothes. And I brought it out on the couch where he was sitting in and I just opened it up and I dumped it right there. Everything. 
All my items were there and accounted for except my right hand glove. It was mm-hmm. gone. And I, did he see that on the floor? Because I don't know where it went. And a pilot, a B-52 bomber pilot gave me those gloves. And they were kind of cherished items to me when I first got there. That They were cool mittens, you know. I mean, they we weren't issued those. They were really special gloves. And uh, that just shocked me that that glove was gone. But yet he remembered seeing it on a shiny floor. So and I, you're thinking it could be a craft, possibly? Well, or something like that. It was left on the floor and it had a fur back and it was like yellow kangaroo skin on the three, on the three fingers side. Think this finger is free for the operation of your weapon. And you open your trigger guard on your weapon. So you can Mm. use your one finger and they come up, they come up to about right here and they fasten into onto your parka. Mm. And uh, so there, you know, you get 50 below zero, you need something. (laughs) You got to have them, you know? Yeah. So, that really set me back when he told me that. And then we did that discovery together. And mm. so I got his information where he lived, uh, his parents' home. And that's, he said, Chicago, Illinois. And I had it in my Bible. Of course, I, you know, I went overseas not long after that. Everything kind of changed concerning the Air Force after that for me. Mm. Uh, meaning eight months later, I was, uh, I got an assignment to o- Osan Air Base, Korea. I was sent remote and I could have selected a two year tour, which I tried to, and I could have taken her with me, but um, that wasn't my commander. Colonel Sprecher said, no, you can't do that. You're going, you got to go remote, which means by yourself. So Hmm. that's what I did. And um, which was okay. It was all right. Supposed to be. Hmm. Uh, And uh, just everything changed. It really did everything. So, so was that a lot of this change happened because of this incident? Mm-hmm. And I did, I did have an incident. I did have a, you remember when that movie Close Encounters of the Third yeah. Kind? Third mm-hmm. kind came out? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I've been hearing about it and it came out in 77. I don't know the exact time, but anyway, <clears throat> I went there and we went together and um, that part where uh, uh, Roy Neary's at the mailbox scene after these objects are, are have been seen in the atmosphere, you know, yeah. and light powers out and all this stuff. He's sitting by the mailbox and he's got that flashlight in his mouth and he's looking at a map and it still shakes me up today if I see that, but, uh, <clears throat> that light appears in his rear window and it gets extremely bright as it did that night for us. <clears throat> and it looks as if, it looks as if the atmosphere is being pulled out of that truck, but something else is happening to him. And I don't know what, like he's being maybe shocked mildly or something. I mean, just the expressions of an actor of what he's doing. I mean, it just, there was similarities there. I felt and mailbox is shaking. I never saw that, but you know, or anything like that, but just the, the incident itself, it, it was some similar stuff to it. And it upset me so much in the theater. I didn't see the ending of, of it. I got up and left because wow. I just, Set and I didn't yeah. see it till a later time because of that. And then, of course, I was asked, Well, why'd you get up so upset? And I, I just, I really didn't want to go into that with her. So, mm. uh, but I, it was, it was maybe a year later when I finally saw it. Mm. Um, maybe I, I think I was in Tampa, Florida or something. I don't even, I don't even know at that time, at that point. But well, Spielberg certainly did a lot of research and talked to a lot of, you know, UFO researchers about yeah. encounters. And so we had a lot of things 
you know, that were pretty, uh, I would, do I want to say accurate, but uh, a, a lot of things that were accurate to what people have discussed over the years. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see why it would make, um, you know, that impact. Um, so it was really something how he, uh, how he centered on devil's tower, the shape of devil's tower, yeah. you know, which, which could be a pyramid. I don't know if that's similarities there, but I'm telling you that, that pyramid thing burned into my mind for some reason. I have no idea why or what, but that's never gone away. Well, you never know. You may be onto something. <laughs> you never know. Uh, so I'm going to pop up a couple of questions here. Do you think sure. it was a MyLab military abduction or extraterrestrial? Oh, if you had, huh? It was extraterrestrial. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I mean, the, by the discussion of the what you saw as far as the creatures go, it certainly wouldn't be anything. Would you say that drawing on pop, pop, putting that up, and it'll be in the show notes too, uh, the drawing that you did, would you say that was pretty accurate for like the eyes and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. The heads are a little bit, not quite shaped like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a good artist and, uh, and, and were they flesh tone from what you can remember? Uh, no, they were, they were more bluish than they, and looking back, they had that, they had that night gray blue tint to them. If that's the proper word, I tried to capture it there, but it's, hmm. it's not quite what I wanted either. And they were wearing some type of uniform or something. It looked like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never understand why I see why I see pictures or drawings and these and these beings have no clothes on. What What is that? Who, who comes <laughs> up with that? I just don't get that. Yeah. You know? Well, they, yeah. they travel next. They travel a, a a craft across the universe <laughs> through a wormhole or whatever, and they come here naked. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. Yeah. And and how did your, uh, someone posted a question here, but I'm not going to put it up because of some of the question is a little bit sensitive, but another part of it is um, how did your spouse uh, react to disclosing this incident? I don't think she believed me. Uh, I really don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she ever did. It doesn't yeah. matter now. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Here's another question here. Do you know if these facilities would have been equipped with closed circuit cameras back in 1977? Uh, no, they were not. They were not. Not yeah. a launch facility. Perhaps um, Cheyenne Mountain and some of those places were, but not a launch facility. Uh, I mean, there were 150 of them, 150 mis Minuteman missile sites just at um, Ellsworth alone. Uh, mm. And these were remote sites. Uh, they had the power to do that, but with the arrays of uh, alarms and sensors and so forth that were these sites were equipped, but they never they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they had the capability, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it spread out so many miles. I, I think this is a good question from Greg Gardner. Do you feel it's been therapeutic talking about your experience publicly? You know, a lot of times it affects me in different ways. Uh, it's all uh, to me, it's how much it's, it's how much I can, um, for instance, going to November five with discovery plus, mm -hmm. I just about passed out standing yeah. in front of that site. And I, and, and really the show, the producers didn't want to get on the site or in front of the site, 
because there's a cattle processing facility on it now, just a, just a metal building, but it's nice looking. You know, the ranchers took over these, these, these properties where these facilities were uh, decommissioned and they were built so well that they, the, the, the rock that they used on the facilities and the fencing are still there. So they, they put their feed and all kind of stuff there and, and it keeps it dry. But standing in that missile site, that I mean, I felt as if they were going to pop out of the sky right in front of me hmm. for some reason. I mean, really, it, it it took me quite a while to gather my thoughts and my feelings and control my emotions to stand on that very spot where I hmm. pulled myself up on the truck, uh, on that windowsill of that truck. Did you ever feel like going um, back there to check it out while you were on the uh, on the base? afterwards i did did you go there did you go there or did you think about it no i went by i went by there several times but that ever went back to november one they sent me to kilo control which was the command center for the 68th area so mm. i was with the supervisor and assistant and and flight uh, uh flight chief and assistant flight chief at all times from that point on until i left they never and, sent me back to november one and i it's kind of bothered me you know i thought well sure you know, I felt I was being, I was really being checked at all points for everything. And there was an investigator out there from Denver. She was uh, investigating uh, cattle mutilations, Linda Moulton Howe. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had seen her on the news several times. Now my partner and I, it was a guy named Mark Wade I worked with and uh, we had the same initials and he was a great guy. And I talked to him several times since then, but I don't have contact with him any longer. And we witnessed a cattle mutilation. Um, I think it was at one of the kilo sites and uh, it was about a mile from the site itself where we had been camping. We had to camp on the site one night waiting for a maintenance team the next day. And because um, that's what happened. They couldn't reset an alarm. You stayed there until a maintenance team came out and a camper alert team would come out and relieve you and you go back to your launch control facility. And uh, anyway, there were there were two dead cattle. And when we went back by there, we didn't see anything. But when we went past the site, past the corner area where this corral was, there were a bunch of law enforcement officers, some uh, maybe some fire fire prevention personnel or volunteer fire department, and um, and law enforcement, and they were all and a couple of veterinarians. They were they were looking at these cattle that had, that had been mutilated, and it was really strange. We got out and looked at them, and they asked if we saw anything because we told them we were we were on that missile site all night long, and they, and we told them we didn't see anything. Hmm. Hmm. So, Interesting. Anyway, she was out there and we were told uh, it's funny how I guess these base information officers, they pick up on things like this. And they put out they put out these these memorandums or whatever you, you we were they they're read at guard mount to us. Any of these briefings and so forth before we dispatch into the field as a flight. And they say, you know, if anybody you know, these things were going on. UFO sightings were happening all the way down under the Badlands. They were happening at Minot. They were happening at Maelstrom. They were happening at Cheyenne or F.E. Warren. <clears throat> you're not to you're not to engage any media personnel or anybody like that. Who was that? It was a newspaper from New York. Um, uh, one of those tabloid papers. Esqu uh, Esquire. No, no, uh, Esquire. I don't know if it was that or, or one that writes up all kind of felonious things about people. I don't know. Anyway, 
Uh, you're not to talk to any reporters, TV reporters, looking at any cattle or any sightings or anything like that to anyone. You refer, us all, refer them all to the base information officer. Notify hmm. your flight chief and report, and they'll report it to us. Hmm. So it was well known. It was it was going on and and continued to go on. And of course, I was circumvented by only staying another eight or nine months and then uh, left for an overseas base. And uh, she, I think Ellsworth was decommissioned and it was at 81. I, I can't remember now. I don't know. Hmm. All the missiles, uh, not the base was, was not decommissioned, just the just the missile wing was. So all those hmm. missile sites and all those launch control facilities are still there. They're just decommissioned. Yeah. There's no weapon inside, I'm sure. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So that night, that particular night, this incident happened. Um, it was uh, it was an alarm that something had breached the perimeter inner and outer inner and outer inner perimeter. perimeter which was the antenna array and a and another underground uh, alarm which which uh, designated a situation four which meant something not only penetrated the alarm array above ground but something penetrated sensors under the ground jeez so you all of a sudden you and um michael is it michael all michael of a sudden Dunn. just disappear from there um, yeah what yeah, do they yeah. do? What is what do they do back at the base? I mean, they got to cover this situation, right? They have to report uh, and what's happening. So what happened after that, after you were missing? Well, I really don't know. Well, I mean, we were completely out of pocket for the next five hours. So they had to send a backup alert team to that site to see what happened. They had mm -hmm. to send people looking for us. Now, one of the most fascinating things is that during the Discovery Plus uh, journey out there, a bunch of people came out on the Ormond Road. It looked like an interstate on a dirt road while we were out there filming. They didn't know what was going on. And of course, they had questions and some people were talking, you know, from the filming people. And uh, but two guys kind of hung behind. One was on a four wheeler. And the other was in like an enclosed like rhino or something like that. And the guy that was in the enclosed rhino, he owned a, like 20, 20, 30,000 acres back there, court, back toward Bear B or no, toward Castle Rock, which is a little bit further north. And then the guy that was um, on a, a regular four wheeler, <clears throat> he owned a bunch of property and he was from Newell. Now, he was a deputy sheriff. He was probably. 66, 67, my age, but he was a deputy sheriff, a young deputy sheriff in Sturgis, South Dakota, which is about 29 miles south of Newell, South Dakota. So what he told us was that wing security control contacted state officials in Sturgis and Newell to search for us. We never, I never knew any of this. Hmm. And then this fellow was in the enclosed rhino he, t he said that his father was a state trooper at the time, and he remembers the call that his father got at two o'clock in the morning to come search for us. And his question to whoever he was speaking with back at Ellsworth, then he overheard him. He said, well, why am I going to go look for them? They're equipped better than I am to handle any situation, which we were. Mm -hmm. So we had these other law enforcement personnel looking for us, plus our own backup alert teams and art arm response teams looking for us. So there was three security police patrols. That's that's six security police officers and at least two uh, deputy sheriffs 
and a state patrolman looking for us all at the same time. Now, the state trooper, this guy told, and we've got his name and so forth. He told um, whoever his, he reported to at, at Ellsworth that he saw some strange lights in the sky. He didn't expound on any of that. And then that's what this fellow told us, that his father saw some strange lights in the sky, and he reported it to the people at Ellsworth. I don't know if anything was ever on radar. I never was privy to any of that. So I really honestly don't know. And I never knew those people were looking for us, too, until I went out there uh, with Discovery Plus people. Yeah, wow, that's something. Now, I'm sure that they were on the radio with you that entire time, trying to be. And you were most likely both unconscious or at least not reactionary to what was going on. Uh, so the the question here in chat, it, I'm going to kind of expand on a little bit. They're asking if uh, your clothing was put on weird after the event and what they're getting at was, was there any type of signs of disruption? Like you may have been taken in any type of way, like clothing or anything else. I know you mentioned the glove, but, um, but was there anything else that made you suspicious when you thought about it later? Well, I have two marks on my body. Um, both on the left side of my body and um, don't know where they came from. I never remember any injuries there or anything like that. And mm. uh, one is under my left arm here, mm. under here. I've got pictures of it close up. It's a scoop mark. And then on my inner left ankle in the same area behind my ankle bone, which have been looked at. And I, I asked uh, a few doctors that I know and one that I go to, had he ever, what would these be in a medical emergency, which I've never really had. Um, I never had a, an emergency being in an accident or a car accident or something like that, where I was transported by ambulance or anything like that. But um, he said there was no known medical procedure that he could think of why anyone or why these areas would be penetrated with anything to either draw blood or or whatever they were meant to do. He said he, that that made no sense whatsoever, but they're identical to each other. I mean, in close up photography, which we've done, which is really, I've got pictures of it. I can say uh, that right there, right? I just yeah. found this. Yeah. Okay. So that was uh, the mark. And when did, how soon afterwards did you discover this? I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half. I never, I never knew it. And then the one on the inside of my ankle, I, I, I don't, looks exactly like that. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so someone wanted to know here, would you be interested in hypnotherapy to help remember the incident? Have you thought about that regression? Uh, yes, I've, I've done that twice. You now. have done it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and how did that go? Uh, well, actually the first time, um, uh, a uh, very credible MUFON uh, hypnotist investigator uh, hypnotized me. And um, uh, I know during, during the uh, hypnosis, I, I, I really got uh, kind of away from myself or something. I, I don't know, but I remember several things that I'd never seen before or knew before. And, uh, it put me in AFib. And oh I my God. Yeah. Wow. And I had to be, I had to go get the shocks. And, um, 
and I went in AFib again a week later. And it was funny because, or it wasn't funny, but for about three weeks, I was, I, 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 I sleep in this room because I work shift work. And, uh, so I don't disturb anybody else. And, um, I just kept feeling like there was a presence around me or something uh, mm. that I felt back at Ells back at November five. And, um, I, I really can't explain that, but I've had that several times, but my, my, my hours that I wake up at night are just really, really strange. Hmm. So like one eleven, three ten, three eleven, four eleven. Well, like uh, consistently. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I've got a dream log about four inches thick <laughs> and, huh. uh, you know, I mean, apoc apocalyptic stuff, you know, like tidal waves, nuclear explosions, uh, uh, famine, just really done, you know, not fun stuff, wake you up sweating, you know, you think, wow, this can't happen. You know, I don't know how to stop that. Well, here's kind of a, a question related. Have you ever worked on dealing with resolving the trauma because you deserve to? Um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, this sounds like PTSD. I don't, I don't know, through counseling, I guess. Yeah, I've been, that's been mentioned to me several times that I really don't know how to follow up on that. You know, I associate PTSD with a, you know, with a wartime act or something that you see or feel, I guess you can get it at any time. And right. this would have definitely been an early onset of that uh, mm -hmm. because I'm definitely a, uh, a guarded person and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in every way uh, I, I just have to be, I mean, really you, I just have to be. And there's nothing, the thing about it, there's nothing you can do to stop these beings. There's not one thing you can do. And you, you hope that if they ever show themselves again, that you can withstand it, that you can mm. look at them, you know, instead of flipping out or losing mm. your mind, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I, like using the word. I don't know. But in this case, I really don't know. Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't even imagine, um, uh, what that what is that like have you met other people that are saying they're abductees or experiences yeah. as they say i have and I've, I've talked with two of them and uh there's some pretty credible people and they they've got a lot of uh resume behind them in this in in this field mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh have you ever this is another question from electric jellyfish i like that one um That's have cool. you ever thought of yeah. Have you ever thought of writing a book? Yes, I have. Uh, I've got a friend that's been writing books and he's, he's really, really good at it. And uh, I'm going to see if I can tap him up for maybe showing me how, or, I mean, I've got enough notes probably to put together for it because I, I do take a lot of notes and I do write a lot to myself or like a journal kind of entry, you know, mm -hmm. thing. but um, my sister said the same thing. She said I should write a book, but I, you know, I've just uh, it seemed, it seems like it would be very interesting for a lot of people. Um, do you know if there's another uh, question here? Do you know if the nearby air base caught <clears throat> anything on radar? Did anyone catch anything on radar when this was happening that you're aware of? Uh, I'm not aware of it, but, you know, Rapid City Airport was actually closer than Ellsworth Air Force Base. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if either either did. And I didn't even know to ask. And I was too afraid to ask, to be honest with you. Because mm -hmm. you have to realize, you know, it's a whole lot different for an airman or an NCO to have an incident and to talk about it versus an officer. Hmm. And, and meaning that an officer usually has 
uh, you know, a different higher chain of command uh, to discuss things with. And, you know, like a launch control officer sitting underground when all his, all 10 of his missiles go offline. Well, it's not only known by him, it's known by everybody that monitors the capability of our nuclear weapon arsenal. <laughs> I mean, it's just not combined. It's just not confined to them. Everybody knows about it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so everything, you know, everything transpires from that many reports are generated just from that one incident there. But for something like what happened to us, I, I, I think that they really honestly don't know how to approach it and don't want to acknowledge it and say it never happened or it can't happen or we don't understand it. So it can't happen. So don't talk about it or you will be in trouble. You're still going overseas no matter what you do. And that, that's just the way it, that's the way it just pans out. Unfortunately, it all rolls downhill. Right. Right. And now this, as of this year with the new bill that was signed, um, there's going to be an investigation of these type of situations all the way back to 1945. So this is something I hope that they do take a look at, you know, this, this particular situation and the other, you know, like Maelstrom Air Base and other, um, you know, when there was interference mm -hmm. with, with nukes, because mm -hmm. this is, this, these weren't nukes. They were, what were they? What were these missiles? Nukes. <laughs> oh, they were nukes. Okay. Yeah, these nukes. Yeah. 1.2 megatons each. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Nasty little things. So, yeah. So there was interference with these nukes. Um, I think, you know, I mean, if that's not national security, what is? I mean, this should be you know, investigated. Yeah. And, you know, you and I discussed before, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, they shut this down. They shut these sites down. They shut these missiles off, right? And then all of a mm -hmm. sudden it came back on. Well, you know, it wasn't always like that. You know, there were times, I, I think they have fun with us. I think they like to see what we do. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I really think they have a sense of humor in some way. They, they have to have. Look at You're our, not look the first one that said that. I've look heard at people what's on say our that. TVs. Yeah. They got to laugh at that. But <laughs> yeah, but you know, the other thing is it really gets me what I, I used to blow me away was to get dispatched to a missile site, whether it be November or Oscar or Echo, any place that you worked all of a sudden, because I did vacation relief also, you know, and, um, but everybody knew about this. A missile starts to cycle itself to launch out, out of the blue, not turn itself off, but cycle to launch, start going through the launch sequence on their, on, on their uh, comm boards underground. So they call in a panic. Oh, I got, we, you know, we need you to do something. So they're trying to think of things for you to stop this rocket, you know, in case it does launch. Now, now the, the nuclear part couldn't, couldn't function. They haven't been armed, wouldn't be armed, but. But that wouldn't matter to someone seeing a missile coming, would it? Yeah, it, it wouldn't matter. But yeah. the thing about it is, so what's the, what's the immediate thing that we can do to stop this, prevent this from happening? First thing jump in your vehicle with your partner, haul buggy out to this missile site, literally put your miss drive up onto the blast door, which is a 13 ton concrete octagon shaped door with a cattle trail at one end of it. And it blows it off on rails. If it goes, there's about, I don't know how many hundreds of pounds of, uh, of explosives there are in that door to blow it off. But it's immediate when that door blows, that missile goes, it's just that fast. There's no hesitation, but anyway, in hopes that, you put your vehicle, a one and a half ton vehicle on top of that door. 
you face it in the direction of the cattle trail, put it in neutral, get it, get your stuff and run off that site and get a mile away from it. This is, that's a standard SOP. Get a mile away from it and watch. Now, if it launches, that door's going to blow off and hopefully that vehicle will fall down on top of that missile before it launches and it'll mess up the gyro and it'll cause it to go off and just crash in the, in the prairie somewhere. That's crazy. How that's close did one get to launching? I, I really don't know, but I mean, that was what we used to have to do when they did it. And of course they didn't launch. So then we were told all clear, go back and get your vehicle and get off the site. And, and we what, all go, you know, did they, go. <laughs> what was the investigation? Uh, what did they come up with for an investigation of why this happened? We were never told, you yeah. know, the only ICBM that ever flew literally out of a, out of one of the uh, launch facilities was that November two. And that was a test sequence. I think it flew for five seconds before they detonated it, you know, blew it up conventionally had, it was not armed. It was just a yeah. test to see that they would fly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Boy, this is, uh, this is really something. Um, let's see. This is, I think this is actually a good question. Now I know this was 1977, but were yes. you really Damn thirsty immediately yes, after the situation? Do you happen to remember? Say that again. I'm, I was was, you remember that. Yeah. Was he asked if I was really thirsty? I'm yes. telling you, man, I could have drank Newell Lake dry. And I'm not kidding you. He just asked if I was <laughs> thirsty after my abduction. Yeah. Right. I and, I, and I'm wondering what what is related to uh, where he came up with that. And because I've never heard oh, of anyone talk about that. I've never been asked that before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember I asked Travis Walton if it was four days, where did you go to the bathroom? <laughs> I asked him, you know, what did he use for uh, bathroom facilities? Uh, you know, if he remembered any of that. Um, and he, he doesn't remember any of that. But uh, but this has been a real pleasure. Let me just see if there's anything else we got going here. Uh, let's see. Given all that you've been through, would you voluntarily go through another event like 1977? I think you you said that was horrifying. You really wouldn't, right? I mean, this is nothing you're really interested in. I think that if the opportunity, well, I don't know if it'd be an opportunity or not, but if they come for you, you you're, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So I would try to go through it with more understanding. Uh, I would try to, I would try to keep my composure and uh, try to keep a logical head about me. I, I don't know if I could ever, uh, you know, you'd like to think that, um, that you could stick your hand out and say, how you doing? You know, like, like they did in closing Canada, da, 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 whatever that was, you know, but I don't know if you can. I mean, you're, you're talking about a completely different species from somewhere far off in the universe, you know, or light, light years away. I don't know. Uh, or and maybe they've been here for many, many thousands of years under the sea, under the ground. Who knows? They can yeah. do anything they want to do. I don't it think it seems that, like I, I, I hear that kind of uh, narration quite a bit lately yeah. that, uh, you know, maybe they've been here for a long time. I had someone from, former CIA on uh, recently who kind of said the same thing. And uh, it seems like I'm hearing that, uh, you know, more and more these days. And let's see, is it, it's related to the time dilation between different reference frames. I'm not really sure what that, that's not really a question, but uh, 
Here's uh, I'm just going to pop up a couple more questions here and then we'll call it a night. Do you think you could have overpowered them physically if um, they didn't knock you out? You know, I mean, would you even dare uh, to try? I, I want to say this. If um, in that situation, <clears throat> when I was standing in November five, when I was just out there, <clears throat> last year i mean i'm this is this i did not know whether to run and i was armed heavily armed shoot at him and i said this on live tv or mess myself hmm. because you you're literally in that state of mind to where you're the rabbit behind the bush in the middle of the desert and there's only one bush and you're behind it. Hmm. And the, the worst, biggest, baddest hunter on in that you could ever think of is on the other side of that bush looking at you, knowing you're there. Right. I, I don't I don't know if I could uh I don't know if I could overpower them. I, I mean I, I guess physically I could, I, I think, but who knows? Maybe they don't need muscle, maybe they use their mind to do whatever they want, maybe they can manipulate you me anybody as they want to uh, you know you don't think anybody could but we don't know their capabilities yeah honestly i kind of agree with you there it's uh it seems to me that they could do about anything they wanted to in my opinion from what you know i've heard uh people have talked about over the years it just seems yeah. like uh like you know where that they're so they're on a different level and we they can't are. even imagine the, the level that they're on. But um, this one last question here just popped up. Are you familiar with the per the Berkshires UFO incident? Did you look into I've, that? I've heard of it. I, I've heard yeah. of the Berkshire. That's up in, uh, is that New York? Uh, Northern no, New York? Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Yeah. yeah. I've, it's, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's, <clears> it's, I, quite, I it's uh, where did that come from? It's quite interesting. And... Uh, it's really it's on Netflix um, Unsolved Mysteries uh, season or so ago, um, okay. but it's really quite quite a very it's they did a really good job with it, and a lot of people knew it as the Tom Reed uh, abduction you know family abduction and there's a monument and all oh, that. Yeah, uh, I do know about that. You yeah, know, I was also so many people. Yeah, I was also amazed that Graham Hancock's. Uh, what is it? Uh, ancient, um, not ancient archaeology. Uh, he just he just did that on Netflix. Uh, yeah, archaeology, but ancient apocalypse. Yeah. I think is what he said. What it was, and it is it's phenomenal. Some of the stuff that uh, that he's gotten and and how they've dated some of these things. Again, archaeology is just telling so much, and you know, for everything that's there, it's only about six percent of what exists. So that just blows my mind, you know. I mean, the Sahara Desert in Egypt wasn't even there twelve thousand years ago. It was a lush. Well, they form. they have no way to date unless they find something mm -hmm. that was contemporary with whatever it is <clears> they <throat> find. You can't date stone. You know, you can do all Correct. kinds of things with pottery and yeah. wood, and you can date all that stuff. But when it comes to stone, they you can't date can't when it. it was shaped and formed and moved, and you know, the stone itself is you know millions of years old. So they can't. They can't date those times. But anyway, a fascinating conversation, Mario. Thank you so much.
Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. And I like our talks even when we're not talking on the radio. It's always fun to talk to you. So you take care. You too. And thank you again. All right. Thanks. All right, everyone. So thank you so much. I'll be back next week with Grant Cameron. And what did I see? Someone sent me this. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Keep looking and keep watching the skies. Well, that's similar to what I say. Uh, So keep your eyes to the sky and we'll see you next week at the same time.